Garden Basics with Farmer Fred is brought to you by Smart Pots, the original, lightweight, long-lasting fabric plant container. It's made in the USA. Visit smartpots.com slash Fred for more information and a special discount. That's smartpots.com slash Fred. Welcome to the Garden Basics with Farmer Fred podcast. If you're just a beginning gardener or you want good gardening information, well, you've come to the right spot. Are you making a fall garden to-do list? Today, America's favorite retired college horticulture professor, Debbie Flower, talks about one of the best tasks to do this time of year as you transition from the warm season to the cool season garden. It's cleanup time. Besides making the garden prettier, we mentioned some early fall chores that can help reduce next year's insect and disease problems in your garden. Also, organic advocate Steve Zion talks about one of the easiest ways to improve your garden soil this winter mulching with leaves. He explains the hows and whys of putting leaves on your garden bed. And pretty soon at Warm Climate Nurseries, berry plants will be arriving. Look for them in mid to late fall. But in the meantime, do some planning. So we'll revisit our most popular chat with landscape advisor and master gardener Pam Bone from last spring on how to grow raspberries and blackberries. We're podcasting from Barking Dog Studios here in the beautiful Abutilon jungle in suburban purgatory. It's the Garden Basics with Farmer Fred podcast brought to you today by Smart Pots and Dave Wilson Nursery. Let's go. We have a quick tip for you. Debbie Flower is here, America's favorite retired college horticultural professor. And summer is gone. It's now fall, but garden cleanup time is here. Perhaps your summer crops have finally done their thing, and it's time to either make room for a cool season garden or just uh, clean it up for a lot of very, very good reasons, Debbie. Oh, yeah. Uh, the, the two things I sort of focus my fall cleanup on is making it pretty. You know, there's potentially dead things out there that I want to get rid of, things I know are going to die that I'll either cut down now or I'll cut down later, and controlling pest problems, controlling primarily disease. So I like to do cleanup, fall cleanup with those two things in mind. It's amazing that when you go out and pull out uh, summer crops, what is left behind? I, I pulled out the popcorn last week. And sure enough, there was all sorts of spurge growing at the base. Oh, yeah, hidden. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, all right. That gives me something else to do. And also, if you're in the habit of of pulling out the roots of annual plants, you just might bring up some white grubs with you as well. Yes, And you can feed those to the birds. Right. Just toss them over your shoulder. To chickens, if you've got them, yeah. Yeah. Leave them on the ground. The birds will get them. Yeah, that is one technique for the winter is sometimes to remove mulch in places where you've had a a grub problem and let the birds find them. Yep, yep, that that works very well. If you had a problem plant and you're getting rid of it and you're not sure what that problem is, it might be a disease. It might be a disease. It might be a disease like a root rot brought on by poor drainage right there. Or it might be something that's uh, passable to another plant in the garden. So I wouldn't even, in those situations, maybe not even compost that plant. I would right. put it in the green waste. Right. If you, Especially if you don't know how to identify it. You can always take pieces to knowledgeable nursery professionals and ask them. Our mutual friend, Don Shore, who owns a, a nursery in Davis, California, Redwood Barn Nursery, always says, make that sample size of a sheet of paper. Paper you would type on. Paper you would get a letter on. So eight and a half by 11. 
don't bring a single leaf and ask what's wrong with your plant. Bring a section of the plant that is at least as big as contains stems and leaves and maybe flowers if they were there. That gives more clues to the professional to help you diagnose the problem. And the roots can tell you tales, too. They can tell you tales. You want to see how they've grown, the shape they've grown in. You want to smell the soil when you take it out of the ground. If it smells like low tide, you've got a, a, a root rot problem for sure. By the way, for those of you born inland, the smell <laughs> the smell of low tide is a rather rancid smell. It's kind of like a sewer yeah. when you're fixing the sink and you forget to plug the pipe that's coming up out of the ground. <laughs> Sounds like you've done that before. Yeah. <laughs> Put a plug in that. All right. Is there value to replacing mulch? There is a lot of value, especially under a plant that has a disease. Roses come to mind because they do get many diseases and they are a lot of them are fungal diseases and fungus creates spores. Spores can fall to the ground, and then with winter weather, rain in particular, even wind, they can get back, splash up, or blow back up onto the plant, and they're sitting there waiting for the right conditions to germinate in spring. So you can, if you're ambitious, remove the layer of mulch, that would be ideal, a layer of mulch that is right under that plant, and then bring in fresh mulch and put it down in its place. The mulch you removed would probably not be good to compost, unless you know you have a very hot, active compost that gets to 140 degrees in all parts before you use it. At some point while I'm removing summer annuals, I'm hoping to find the pair of reading glasses that fell out of my pocket <laughs> somewhere in the yard. You know what I keep losing? Hori Horis. Yeah. It's a Japanese gardening knife. I had three of them. Now I have two. Now I have one. I don't know. I think they. F I wear an apron with pockets in the front when I garden. I think when I bend over, they must fall out. So, number one is paint the handles of your tools a bright color. Or put a bright electrical tape on the handle. Something, yeah. yes. Something to give it color. I chose orange, orange like safety paint mm -hmm. uh, to the hori hori I still have. Yes. <laughs> but right, I'm hoping to find mine as well. Tools can get left behind in the garden. Yeah. And, and when, glasses. And when you find them, what do you do? Well, you clean them up. Yeah. You got to get them out of the garden. And, and as you're pulling plants or, or weeding sections or removing and replacing mulch or just mulching because it's, it's time again, you may find things that you didn't know you'd lost. And so, uh, clean them, wash them with a scrub brush or a, or a sponge, something rough to get the, the sand off and then oil them. Okay. What about removing rust? Well, rust you can remove by, by washing and, and rubbing, scrubbing, and then oil will help it stop forming. But rust in itself is actually a protective layer. Really? So you shouldn't scrape it off with a wire brush? Well, if you're going to maintain the tool from then on so it, no more rust forms, then yes. Then that, that's where the oil comes in. Do scrape it off with a wire brush. But you have to then bring it in each time you use it, clean it off, put new oil on it, and put it away. Well, that almost sounds like what you should do every time you use tools at the exactly. end of the day. That's how you would maintain it once yeah. you've gotten the rust off of it. Yes, that's what I was referring to. Yeah, just scraping the dirt off, the loose dirt off your tools at the end of the day. Don't put away dirty tools. No, don't put away dirty tools, especially at my house. <laughs> okay. <laughs> hey, now, for those who may who may not have had an experience with a hori hori knife, it is really a, a multi-use tool. It is, which is why I carry it around with me. Yes. Yeah, it's heavy duty. 
It's mm-hmm. it's a heavy shank of metal that when you look at it at first glance, it, it looks like a knife. But it's also a trowel. It's also a saw. Right. It's got nice big teeth on one side. It's got a wide enough blade you can dig a hole. It's got a sort of a forked tongue at the tip, which sometimes helps getting weeds out mm-hmm. of the ground. It's a very useful tool. You'd think they'd, they'd be hard to lose being about a foot long, long or so, but they disappear. <laughs> Mine do. <laughs> yeah. Not that I hold it against my wife, but I still miss that hoary, hoary knife that went missing <laughs> 20 years ago. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's, yep. it's one of those tools that you build up a relationship with. Here's another thing I like to do in fall. Maybe more of a California thing than other climates because I tend to only plant in certain seasons and that's from when we first get rains through maybe till Thanksgiving because the soil remains fairly warm and we're hopefully getting some natural rain and the days are shorter, temperatures are milder. And so the plants establish pretty well during that time. As I'm doing the cleanup, which I'm doing earlier in the season, I get some of those flat, they're about one and a half inch wide wooden stakes, maybe a foot long, and the thin ones, Mm -hmm. the cheap ones. I don't like the plastic because I have, I know there's a whole suite of animals that visit my yard at night, raccoons and skunks, and, and the plastic ones tend to get bent over or broken. The wood ones are tall enough and thick enough that doesn't seem to happen. And I'm a marker, a permanent marker, and write on it things I would like to do in that area of the landscape. If I want to move a plant and it's not, it's too early, I'll say move this plant to and name the location. If I want to get a new one, I've thought it through, I've done my research, I've picked out my plant, I'll say plant a, an X plant over here. It has helped me organize my thoughts because I could pick all kinds of plants for one location. And I, if I've done the research, I need to make sure I sort of put that in, in writing for myself. I kind of do the same thing, but I use green tree tape. Oh. And I will tie it, especially on permanent crops like fruit trees or fruit-producing shrubs. If there's a non-productive section to that plant, in its time of production, I will put that piece of green ribbon-like tape around the non-performing branch to remind me at the end of the season when there isn't much evidence of anything that this is dead. (laughs) Yes, this is sort of tangential, but when I'm thinking of pruning a plant to shape it, but it's not the right season, especially if it's a woody plant I'm going to prune during dormancy, I go out with a roll of masking tape and we'll put pieces of tape around the branch I think I want to remove and then I'll walk around the plant because the plant looks different from the other mm-hmm. side and check out my choice and walk around the other side, etc. And then when it comes time to prune, I have made my decisions. I was walking around the Fair Oaks Horticulture Center during their September workshop and they have on a trellis a Stella cherry mm-hmm. tree, except the tree has been espaliered. espaliered. And if you live in California, there's this old garden rule that you want to prune your apricots and cherries in August because it can allow those wounds to heal in time before the winter rains happen, which could spread rain-spreading diseases like utypa. Right. Uh, well, okay, so that's a good piece of advice. All right, so prune your apricots and cherries early, maybe in August. But what happens then when you've pruned your, let's say, Stella cherry tree on the espalier two or three days before in late August, and then all of a sudden, 100 degree temperatures Mm. hit for the next 10 days, Mm. and it gets up to, say, oh, I don't know, 116 degrees. That was an unusual heat wave, and for which I think most of us 
really didn't know what to do. Shade cloth is what pops to mind for me. Well, what happened, though, was the side, it was on a north-south facing espalier. Okay. The south side facing the sun, the side that they pruned, uh, well, they pruned both sides, but that south facing side, all of a sudden, that hot sun was hitting newly exposed leaves, Mm -hmm. and they all got burned to a crisp. Mm -hmm. It was brown on one side, go over to the north side, beautiful green. And so that may influence how, well, it will influence how it grows in the future. I have seen other plants burned like that, some in my own landscape. And then we had a whole bunch of rain, and I thought maybe that would knock off these burned plant parts, particularly leaves, and that didn't happen. Mm-hmm. So that that means there's still a cellular attachment between the petiole of the leaf and the stem. So now we need to watch and see if the coming shorter days and cooler temperatures allow that plant to produce the cells that allow that leaf to fall off. If not, then the wood has been damaged also. Yeah, there are a lot of rules we follow because it's calendar-based. Right. And we're very organizational. We like to uh, plan things out. And, of course, you do things every month of the year. That's why there's things like garden calendars. But I'm wondering now the value of garden calendars with uh, sudden changes in the weather. Yes, Well, the calendars need to adapt, but we don't know how to adapt until we live through it, I think. Yeah, but at least with most weather and the accuracy of weather forecasts, we can get a glimpse of what's going to happen 10 days out, 12 days out, that might influence what we were about to do. Yes. And so we have to think in that regard as well. Right. Another thing about pruning, especially a cherry and an apricot probably too, is that they have thinner wood. They have thinner bark. It's not the wood itself. It's the bark. It's the outside layer. The protective layer is pretty thin on those trees, particularly the cherry. And if you prune them in a sunny, dry time of the year when it's still summer, you need to go in and whitewash Mm -hmm. the newly exposed wood. I have an apricot and I haven't finished pruning it and it's September and I should have, but I keep debating removing a fairly large branch that runs horizontal over the top of about a third of the plant. And my debate has to do with sun. When I remove that branch, what am I going to expose and how is it going to react? I'm going to do it in a season later than than is recommended here in California because I'm more concerned about sun burning the exposed wood than anything. The outlook for rain this year here isn't all that good. Right. So you may I have plenty of time. Long dry periods, right? Yeah. Well, unfortunately, uh, yeah, there's that too. We've taken some interesting scenic bypasses talking about end of summer or beginning of fall cleanup time. But again, we will persevere. One other thing to do in fall cleanup, if a plant is dying, take it out while it's still alive. Or if a branch is dying, cut it off while it's still alive. The reason for that is it's much, much easier to cut wood or roots that are alive and contain water than wood or roots that are dead and totally dried out. Hmm. (laughs) That's my reaction. Wouldn't they just snap off? No, they don't. It's a lot harder to prune uh, with a tool, and I try to sharpen mine before I use them each time. I'm trying to force that habit into myself. It's much harder to cut dry, dead wood than it is living, lubricated wood. That's what it is. The water acts as a lubricant. Have you heard about anvil loppers? 
Yeah, I have a set. Okay. Yeah. All right. And that's that's the only purpose there is for anvil loppers as opposed yeah, to bypass. Yeah, s- still cut the wood, but it's easier All right. if it's alive. Okay. And you can always just wrap a chain around it, tie it to the back of your pickup truck, <laughs> and hit the gas. Okay, I'll remember that. Yeah, don't do that. All right. I, I did that with an oleander once, and I almost lost the bumper on my oh, truck. Oh, yeah. Yes. The way bumpers are made these days, I believe that. Yeah, all right. All right, end of summer garden cleanup time, beginning of fall. Let's get to it. Thank you, Debbie. You're welcome, Fred. You've heard me talk about the benefits of Smart Pots, the original award-winning fabric container. Smart Pots are sold around the world and are proudly made 100% right here in the USA. Smart Pots is the oldest and still the best of all the fabric plant containers that you might find. Many of the imitators are selling cheaply made fabric pots that fall apart quickly. Not Smart Pots. There are satisfied Smart Pot owners who have been using the same Smart Pots for over a decade, actually approaching 20 years. When you choose Smart Pot fabric containers, you know you'll be having a superior growing experience with the best product on the market. And your plants will appreciate Smart Pots too. Because of the 1 million microscopic holes in Smart Pots, your soil will have better drainage and the roots will be healthier. They won't be going round and round on the outside of the soil ball like you see in so many plastic pots. The air pruning qualities of smart pots creates more branching of the roots, filling more of the usable soil in the smart pot. Smart pots are available at independent garden centers and select Ace and True Value hardware stores nationwide. To find a store near you or to buy online, visit smartpots.com slash Fred. And don't forget that slash Fred part. On that page are details about how, for a limited time, you can get 10% off your Smart Pot order by using the coupon code FRED. Use it at checkout from the Smart Pot store. Visit smartpots.com slash FRED for more information about the complete line of Smart Pots lightweight, colorful, award-winning fabric containers. And don't forget that special Farmer FRED 10% discount. Smart Pots, the original award-winning fabric planter. Go to smartpots.com slash Fred. Well, we're going from summer gardening to cool season gardening. Maybe you don't want to put in cool season crops. Maybe you don't want to deal with plants that might be killed by a frost or a freeze. But don't leave your summer garden intact in its place. There are some cheap and easy things you can do that will not only minimize pest problems for the following years, but also during the winter, feed your soil and make it even better for next year. We're talking with Steve Zion. He is Sacramento's organic advocate of uh, organic gardener for decades. He ran his own organic gardening and uh, consulting company for decades. And Steve, I know we, we've talked about cover crops before, but going beyond cover crops, if people want an easy way to feed their soil during the winter, they don't want to grow a cool season crops. I think one of the easiest things to do, well, two things to do is A, cut down everything to soil level. If you're growing tomatoes and peppers, just cut them off at the soil level, but leave the roots in the soil. Exactly. And then, and then cover that soil with leaves that are falling from the trees in the fall. Grind them up with your mower or a weed whacker or something and just put down six, eight, 12 inches of leaves on top of that garden bed. And now it's your turn to tell us about the benefits of doing that. Yeah, it's it's absolutely wonderful. It, it 
regulates the soil temperature. The soil temperature will be warmer. Uh, the fact that it's all ground up makes it easier for the biology that's in the soil to come up into that mulch and munch it down. And then the rains will help leach those small little particles down. The worms that are in your soil will come up and feed on that every single day. And if, if it's a thick mulch, even at night, because it won't, it'll be dark, they will be aerating your soil and, and taking that organic matter material down into the soil. And the nutrients that leach through by the rains uh, will also leach the biology because that'll start composting on the top of the soil. And the biology that's composting will increase in, in numbers and will, uh, and end up moving down into the soil as well. So you will get nutrients moved down into the soil and, and increase the nutrient value and you will get more soil biology. And the more soil biology you have, the more diversity and the more numbers, the healthier your soil is and the healthier your crops will be. Um, I just took a class uh, recently. Uh, everybody's been talking about rotating your crops for for, for decades to uh, reduce pest problems. And they're saying that uh, if you have the right biology and you put down, you know, you either grow cover crops or you put down uh, a thick mulch, you really will have the biology in there, uh, the beneficial soil biology to naturally combat the pest problems. And you should not have to uh, rotate your crops. I love it when you're a contrarian. <laughs> yeah, that's great. <laughs> and it makes perfect sense, too. Yeah. If you've got the, the, the good soil biology down there and then you're feeding it with either a cover crop or with a thick mulch, you're feeding all that good biology. The good biology will fight it out basically with the bad biology and not allowing them to grow in, in substantial numbers where it's due harm to your plants the following season. Now, I mentioned earlier about um, clipping off the tops of the plants and leaving the roots in place. True or false? True. Because they will, they will decompose and typically will decompose pretty fastly. Again, if you have an organic, happy, healthy soil, if you've been using pesticides, you've been using synthetic fertilizers, the biology isn't going to be there to break that stuff down. But if you, if you're growing organically, got a lot, you'll have a lot of biology in your soil. That stuff, most of those roots will, will break down very, very quickly. And they will create air channels. They're, they will end up aerating your soil because the, where the root was is there's nothing there anymore. And so you've got these big pore spaces. So when you irrigate next spring, the water is going to move in through the soil. The worms can move through the soil better. The soil biology can, you know, all of the various microbes and, and, and mites and beneficial mites and protozoa and all those guys can move through the soil and do their job better. And you're also improving uh, water percolation uh, for the years ahead by keeping those roots in. Exactly, because they will, you know, they'll, they'll decompose. The, the, the biology will basically reduce them to nothing, and uh, there will be lar large pore spaces where those roots were. And so, when you irrigate, the water will go down very, very nicely. Which is important if you've got a clay soil, and, and at least here in the Sacramento region, most gardeners have a clay soil. I think across the country, there are a lot of gardeners who are dealing with clay soil. Yes. You mentioned a very unusual word here. I'm, I'm not sure what it is. Uh, you were talking about to help that mulch layer on top uh, break down. 
that rain could do that. What is this thing called rain that you're talking about? <laughs> I don't know. It's it's been a long time, and the, you know, in the last year we got what seven inches, uh, something it. like that. Yeah. yeah. Now that brings up a question: if if it doesn't, if it man, I hope it rains, but if it doesn't <laughs> rain this fall and winter here in California and in many areas of the West, if you don't get the fall and winter rain, should you? Uh, irrigate the top of that mulch like once a week just uh, turn on a hose and start sprinkling it um i think you i think it would be a good idea once in a while uh, certainly once in a once a week it it's not necessary typically you know if you do it once uh in the winter time it's not very hot uh, in many cases it will hopefully be cloudy before you ir- you know irrigate um i would probably irrigate it when you or make sure that that mulch is moist not wet but moist um, when you put it down or after you put it down and then before you add more moisture, uh, don't just look at the surface, dig down, uh, an inch or two and see if it's dry. And if it's dry, then you might want to add more, more water. All right. Yeah. It's a good point. And to reinforce something we said earlier is the smaller the pieces of those leaves that you're using as mulch, the better, the quicker it can break down and feed the soil. And plus, if you were just stacking 12 inches of unchopped leaves on top of your garden bed, you might create an anaerobic environment. It, it can. It would help to, to grind it up some way. And, you know, a lawnmower works works well, and, and you mentioned that. Another easy way to do it if you've got a, a string trimmer is get like a five-gallon or get a garbage can and put, you know, a small amount of the, the mulch in the garbage can and then run your weed eater down in there, and it'll chop it up pretty nicely as well. It's an alternative way to do it. And to uh, save wear and tear on that garbage can, make sure it's a metal garbage can, which are still available. They're out there, yeah. usually a 27 or a 32-gallon um, metal garbage can, and then uh, uh, put those whole leaves, like like you said, maybe fill up that can one-third and then yeah. uh, put your string trimmer in it, turn it on, whiz it around a while, and you'd be surprised <laughs> at how it drops. And then you can pile more in there and then chop it up again and just do it in increments like that. Yeah. And make sure you have a, a, a string trimmer. Cause I know some string trimmers, uh, you can put like metal blades on them. No. Uh, don't, yeah. <laughs> that's going to pretty much uh, destroy your, your contain, your container. Yeah. And, and, and wear eye protection anytime you do that. Yes. Always. The, yeah. Uh, and a string trimmer, not even the plastic blades, uh, but just the, the string trimmer is best. Yes. If you're not going to be planting cool season crops this year, then the least you can do for your soil is cover it with mulch. Chopped up leaves is great. Just leave it on till spring. And you don't even have to remove it in spring. You can just move it aside and, and plant uh, whatever you're going to put in uh, come springtime and uh, keep that as a, a permanent um, mulching area. Just make room for your plants. Exactly. Mr. Exactly's with us. Steve Zion, <laughs> Sacramento's organic advocate, living resources company. Steve, thanks for the good, cool season advice. Been a pleasure as always, Fred. You want to start the backyard fruit and nut orchard of your dreams, but maybe you don't know where to begin. Or maybe you're currently growing fruit and nut trees and you've got a million questions, such as what are the tastiest fruits to grow? Where can I go to buy some of these delectable fruit and nut trees you've been reading about? 
And then how do you care for all of these trees, including planting, pruning, and harvesting? I've got one online stop in mind for you where all these questions you might have will get answered. It's DaveWilson.com. That's Dave Wilson Nursery, the nation's largest wholesaler of fruit and nut trees for the backyard garden. They have planting tips, taste test results, and links to nurseries in your area that carry Dave Wilson fruit trees. Click on the Home Garden tab at DaveWilson.com for all of these links, including a link to their years of informative videos about growing fruit and nut trees that they've posted on the Dave Wilson Nursery YouTube channel. Start the backyard orchard of your dreams at DaveWilson.com. We're at the house of Master Gardener Pam Bone here in Sacramento County, and she loves raspberries, and you ought to see her raspberry garden. So today we're going to talk some raspberry basics, and Pam, this is a rather phenomenal stretch of raspberries you have here. It looks to be about 25 feet long and about uh, 8 feet deep, but what I like is that you have incorporated rows between the uh, raspberry so that you never have to reach more than uh, two and a half feet to pick the berries. So that was smart thinking of putting the rows that you can walk on to be able to reach. That is really critical. Actually, it's really difficult. Otherwise, uh, you don't get into the middle to harvest. It's hard for pruning later on. It's hard for pest control. It's really important. So what we did is we uh, have some raised beds. Uh, they originally were uh, Two by sixes. They've sort of disintegrated over the years, but, uh, but the soil has built up. And, and then between those raised beds, then we put down a lot of mulch. And over the years, it's raised up as well. And so what we have is, uh, pathways throughout the whole area. And, uh, you can get, you can reach and, and pick and harvest. And it's really easy to get to it. And it makes it, uh, a lot easier than a big solid block. Uh, and that is really important. How adaptable are raspberries to the United States? Are there zone limitations? Well, some people would tell you that they can't grow raspberries in Sacramento, that they have a really horrible time. And we've been growing raspberries here at our house for practically the whole time we've lived here, which is nearly 42 years. And there are certain varieties for certain locations. So you have to know what will do well here. You also have to know kind of location they require too. How much sun can they take? You know, you have to have sun in order to produce the berry itself. But um, here in our area, we have been planting Heritage and Oregon 1030. And those are varieties that are adapted to the heat. And the Heritage variety is still available everywhere. My daughter grows Heritage in uh, Washington, in Pullman, Washington. So these are uh, what we call the fall bearers or ever bearers. And and they are a little bit different variety than uh, the kind that you put up on a trellis and all, which actually they're much easier to prune and, and that. So, yes, just uh, go to your local cooperative extension or your nursery and find out what varieties are adapted to your area. And what are their growth habit? And do you want that kind of growth habit? How much work are you willing to do with uh, training them and pruning them and everything? So uh, we've adapted very well here and produce huge crops of berries. If you look at the picture that's with today's episode of Pam's Raspberry Bed, you, you see a lot of T-posts sticking up with a lot of wires. And judging by the heights of the wires, it looks like these raspberries get maybe six feet tall. Oh, yes, definitely. They will grow at least that far. Um, and then, in fact, sort of hang over. So I'd say they might even be seven feet tall. They grow beautifully in our area 
in the location that we have and very vigorously. And we found that this system maintains them without having to do a huge trellis system. Because what these are, uh, they are pruned down, not to the ground, but to basically brown sticks in the um uh, winter months and then the new spring growth comes up and then it keeps growing and then new growth comes up from the uh, base uh, to produce a fall crop. What we found is that uh, it's almost like creating a little playpen for them. All you really need are wires that go around just to hold the berries inside so that they'll be remain upright. So all we do here is you just come on over here, uh, Fred, and you just move the berries as they grow into the wires and then they're just held inside. And so we've got a center wire here too, just to, so they won't flop. And it's a, it's a really ideal system. Uh, we found it works really, really well for this type of, um, everbear or fallbearer raspberry. What's the spacing on these plants? Well, what were, what was the spacing on the plant? Originally. And what is it now? <laughs> yeah. Right. Right now they're probably, my husband just went and, uh, we harvest a lot of plants that come up in between the rows and we have another little nursery area that's too much shade for very much berry production. So we then harvest and, and we place plants that die out. And I would say they're probably about maybe a foot apart uh, or so. They probably started out back in the day about two feet apart, but uh, no, this, this is a block system. It's okay for them to be a little bit crowded, but you can see there's some areas that are a little bit op more open and other areas that uh, it's a little bit uh, more compact and, and that. So I don't think you can really mess up with this system at all. And they can be fairly uh, close together. Remember, raspberries send up nice little new plants all over the place. And so if you space them far apart, they're going to fill in on their own anyhow, so you don't have to uh, crowd them when you first start. This is being irrigated by a drip irrigation system. Yes. You have lines of quarter-inch tubing. It looks like the emitters are, are spaced at 8 or 12 inches apart, and uh, the lines themselves are maybe a foot apart each to ensure um, equal uh, soaking of the soil. Are, are raspberries a thirsty plant? They are. Um, they do need even watering, regular watering. And we did find out kind of the hard way. We've always uh, used a drip irrigation system. But back in the old day, before they had pressure compensating uh, inline emitters, uh, we had uh, this laser tubing. And it just really produced a lot of water. And we wanted to be more efficient. And so even though it was on a drip system, we wanted to change to these uh, new lines. And we found out we've got to put a lot more of these in here because these plants are thirstier than we thought. And that laser tubing was putting out a lot more water. Luckily, it puts that out very efficiently. But yes, I would say uh, we do water these once a week. and But when we do, they may have to run for uh, four to six hours at a time. Depending on the heat and how hot it gets in the summertime here or what kind of a hot spell we're having or uh, whatever, we may then uh, turn it on twice a week and just but not run it quite as long. So I adjust it. But right now it's set for uh, once a week and I believe it's on for four hours. All right. It's springtime when we're recording right. this. So those right. are would be spring hours of irrigation. Exactly. Right. And we increase it. What we want to do is increase the amount of water that is put on at any one time. So we're not doing any shallow irrigation. Uh, these roots are not extremely deep at all, uh, not like a fruit tree or anything, but uh, you do want to wet the soil down at least a foot to 18 inches uh, and keep it moist. And we mulch 
everything is mulched, 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 and a lot of compost over the top as a top dressing to save water, to keep the water uh, into the soil. Try to be as energy and water efficient as we possibly can. But berries, I will say, just like any fruit crop in your landscape, if you really have to save water because you're in a drought or, or whatever, then get rid of your lawn because you can't get rid of your fruit trees. And unfortunately, fruit trees, berries and other things like that take just about as much water as a lawn, if not more. But look at what you're getting out of it. You can eat the berries. It's kind of hard to eat grass. That's exactly right. So we just keep reducing the lawn if we feel like we need to save water. With all the compost and mulch you're using, what sort of fertilizer regimen do you need for raspberries? Well, actually, uh, we don't have to do much of anything, but once a year in the spring, we do... Uh, over top dress with uh, usually something high in nitrogen, just like all fruits uh, of all sorts. And we grow a lot of fruits in our landscape. Uh, they need nitrogen to grow and to produce fruit. People think, oh, you need phosphorus and potassium. But, you know, we've done a lot of soil testing in our area. And I worked for the Cooperative Extension for many years and saw a lot of soil tests come by. And uh, for the most part, uh, we don't see a lot of phosphorus and potassium deficiencies in our woody plants and our fruit trees. Our berries, they might need a little bit more because they don't have as extensive as a root system. So what I usually generally do is just buy something that is an all-purpose, a higher-in-nitrogen fertilizer. As long as it doesn't have any kind of a weed killer in it, lawn fertilizer works just just as well. Yeah, exactly. There are a lot of good like starter lawn fertilizers that take their time to break down and can feed the plants for a, a much longer period of time. And actually, lawn fertilizers are, are a fairly good choice for a lot of uh, massive plantings like raspberries here. And also, the, as like you say, as long as you avoid uh, the weed and feed products uh, and just stick with the feed products, you're okay. That's true. And actually, this year we did put on a lawn fertilizer. Uh, we went out and purchased, uh, we needed some more for the lawn itself. And so I thought, well, let me look for one that uh, is high in nitrogen, but has a little uh, phosphorus and potassium and a little P and K in there. And that'll be good for the berry plants. We also, uh, in addition, grow uh, boysenberries as well. And so I needed uh, something that uh, we could uh, do uh, for those as well. And then we can just use the same old thing on our citrus and our uh, um, apple tree and everything else. Uh, one fertilizer makes it a lot easier. Raspberries, uh, harvest time is when and uh, how do you harvest them and how long can you store them? Well, the berries, uh, this particular variety. Now, remember, these are... Um, these are the two crop variety and a lot of people may grow raspberries that only produce a spring crop. This one also produces the fall crop. It's heritage, right? Heritage is the one that uh, you can find in the nurseries now and it's it's pretty much everywhere. I think they sell it all over the United States. That particular variety then will start bearing a crop in uh, late May, early June and we'll get a pretty good crop then. In fact, actually it might even be mid-May this year. It looks like some of the uh, flowers are getting pretty well developed already at the ends. Now, this is a, a flower fruiting cycle where these are the old canes from last year that were cut down. And then the uh, new growth that you see here is all from last year. As soon as these bear here in an, about another month or 
month and a half or so, then they are going to die back. And then all the new canes arising from below that are going to come up, they're going to produce then a fall crop. And I will say that it's kind of unpredictable, but most of the time our, quote, fall crop, and I should say fall with quotes around it because really the crop starts in August and it'll go till uh, Thanksgiving easily in our area unless we get a really cold snap. So when that stem has produced berries, that stem should be removed? We usually wait until it starts to look really dead and looks like it's not productive at all. And and then we, yes, uh, cut it out. And the reason is, is we used to just leave them, but uh, we found out that we had that mite problem when we had a little bit of drought stress. And we found that if it's uh, too crowded, you don't get the air circulation, the leaves get dusty and dry and mites love that. And we just found that it was easier just to remove it, open it up and, and get rid of it. And then it left a lot of opportunity for the rest of the canes to come up and grow. And then they those come up, then they fruit and uh, we get a, a great crop. I say the heaviest crop is mid-August to the end of September, uh, a great crop. And I put up a lot of uh, jam, so uh, my husband has to pick. He he does all the picking. I I do all the putting up. Uh, My husband calls himself the gardener. I'm the horticulturist. We used to work together on a lot of this stuff, but now uh, he's got me in the kitchen, you know, putting all this stuff up. He then will harvest about every five days because if you don't, Two things will happen. The fruit will get soft and mushy, and then it'll stop producing. But the soft and mushy attracts a fruit fly that goes to our cherry trees as well here. And we haven't had a real problem the last few years if you're really careful with keeping it up. But uh, sometimes if you let that uh, particular fruit fly uh, go wild here, uh, it will uh, infest the fruit with unknown little white maggots until you're making your jam and all of a sudden there they are. So, and especially the fall crops. So we have to be really careful and really religious about getting rid of any fruit that's too soft or decayed or whatever. And picking the raspberries, can you pluck them or do you have to cut them? No, in these, you just pull right off. They pull off very easily and uh, not a not a problem at all. And in fact, when we uh, get down to the boysenberries, same thing. Uh, you can just pull them right right off. You don't have to cut anything. They're very easy to pick. They're not too, I mean, they're a little bit thorny, but, or, you know, a little bit of prickles on them, but not too bad. What does Mike the gardener use to uh, store the raspberries as he's picking them? Does he have a big bag or is he just no, carrying well, a bucket? So what I do is um, I like them because uh, to be in a colander. And so I have a lot of large metal colanders and some plastic colanders. That way there's more broad surface area. He brings them into the house then. And I kind of uh, make sure that they are well distributed because I put them in the refrigerator. And actually raspberries have a very, very long refrigerator life. Uh, they can easily stay in a refrigerator without having to put them up to do anything with them for five to seven days and not see any decay or anything as long as you've picked them without already having uh, a problem with a soft fruit. I try to get to them, though, and put them up if I can within about two to three days. But if something happens and I get a little behind, it's really producing heavily. I can leave some of them in there. It works out really well, actually. Anything else you want to mention about raspberries? Well, I think uh, raspberries are pretty easy to grow. And they're easy to prune and take care of. Um, they produce a beautiful crop. 
and make fabulous jam. Uh, you just have to be uh, careful to attention for making sure you mulch, making sure that they don't ever have, suffer any kind of a drought, uh, keep them irrigated evenly without too much water. They are sensitive to root rot. And we have our soil is a heavy clay soil, and we do have a type of phytophthora in our soil that does infect our raspberries occasionally. And we then, uh, I've had it actually identified at a state lab to make sure. So what we do is we just make sure that we pull those out occasionally, and, and then I, I really watch the irrigation, make sure that we're not keeping it too wet or whatever. But we're still going to get a little bit of it because it's in our soil. And you've got a heavy clay soil, and even just normal spring or winter rains or whatever keeps the soil wet. And as soon as that fungus gets active, then you have to be careful uh, not to keep it too wet. And and so it's kind of walking a little bit of a fine line there with the irrigation. But otherwise, they're pretty carefree. Once a year, fertilization is it and the pruning doesn't take much time. And I highly recommend raspberries. They're they're fabulous and they taste really good. Well, let's walk over to the uh, other berries and, and, and see what's growing. We are at Pam Bone's house here in Sacramento County. Pam Bone, famous Sacramento County Master Gardener, the original Sacramento County Master Gardener, by the way. And we are at her home where they have developed a yard for over 40 years, and Pam loves berries. Pam, it's almost like Knott's Berry Farm here. You've got boysenberries here. Yes. I come from Washington State. My husband comes from Oregon State, and you have to grow berries, raspberries, boysenberries, whatever. Boysenberries are just ideal for making pies, and I make a lot of pies. They make a wonderful jam, and of course, they're delicious for fresh eating as well. And they love our Sacramento climate. Ah, so does that mean that in a state like Washington, they wouldn't do well? No, they do great there, too. They love it there. They do just as fine. So uh, you just have to decide, uh, do you have the um, the sun for them? They just like full sun and they do really well uh, in that. They uh, are very adaptable, actually. Describe the trellis that you've designed for them. Years ago, we had a massive system with the big wooden crossbars on it and the ones that you see commercially and all. And it's a pretty daunting thing. To, and it takes a lot of uh, time and energy to install. And it's uh, expensive. And uh, one day, we had a massive tree fall and literally destroy our entire berry patch here, including the crossbars. And so we decided, you know what, we're going to do this a little easier. And we're going to use these T-bars, these metal T-bars with wires, and it works just beautifully. It holds them nicely. We've got uh, T-bars spaced out so that you've got uh, not too much tension on the wire, you know, too much stress on the wires here. And then uh, we've got uh, the three wire system so that the berries can be trained in three different locations and and, uh, tied on with little twisty ties. And then we use kind of a barrel method, uh, sort of where you, you come up from the base of the plant and then you go onto one of the wires and train the branches, to, sometimes as a barrel loop, if you've got a long enough cane and they loop around, gives a little more maximum sun exposure for the uh, plant. But yeah, these T-bars just work really, really well. They stay in the soil nicely and uh, they you can see they're they turn in just a little on the edges just because some of the tension's uh, late in the season. But you can twist the wire a little bit uh, tighter and, and uh, it works great. And it's inexpensive, easy to do, and not so daunting. 
for you technically minded at home, the the T-bars are spaced about 8 to 10 feet apart, and there's a three-wire system on here that looks like it begins about 18 inches above the ground, and the next two wires are also spaced by another 18 inches. And so the, the total height of this is maybe four and a half to five feet. Uh, yes, and then um, some of the berries later in the season, then they'll stick up a little bit further and they'll lop over just a bit. But uh, otherwise, this contains them pretty nicely, actually. Uh, you can see that we do have some canes that are growing past the uh, wires, but uh, for the most part, it works well for us. If you've got a, a really, really vigorous uh, canes growing, then you might want to make a little bit taller. And, and a little bit more uh, support on the ends as well. Exactly. That's true, too. If they get really heavy and, and uh, laden down, then the wires then sag and, and that. And we get a little bit of that. But, gosh, it's a really inexpensive, easy way to do it. And, uh, and, and if for some reason you had to move it or adjust things or whatever, it's easy to do. Uh, this whole thing with the big wooden crossbars and people putting them in concrete and whatever else they do, it's... Oh, it's like digging a fence and, and, uh, I don't know, a permanent structure may not be what you need to have. How do you care for boysenberries then? What are the watering requirements, the fertilization, and the pruning requirements? Well, as far as watering goes, uh, they need uh, regular irrigation, at least uh, once a week irrigation. We have a drip irrigation system using the inline emitters in rows down the berries themselves. Uh, we have three lines on each of the rows, so uh, we encompass most of the root system. And then we want to make sure that we run that drip irrigation as long as uh water is flowing down into the root system. We want it to go down in as far as we can, uh, which is going to be at least 18, you know, 12 to 18 inches is where most of those roots are contained. So you want to make sure that you run the irrigation long enough. I will say that I uh, find that most people do not run their drip irrigation long enough and they just dribble out a little bit of water. Then you get a very shallow root system. And what happens if you have a dry spell, uh, you forget to water something happens or whatever, then uh, the plants are really suffer. So watering is really critical. Uh, the other thing that uh, we do is we put on a lot of uh, wood chips. Um, we get a lot of arborist wood chips that are delivered to us and put that on. And then we always top dress with compost. Uh, we have a lot of compost piles. We have a lot of uh, oak trees and other uh, trees that produce leaves. And plus, of course, I save all my kitchen scraps in that. And uh, that compost then makes a wonderful top dressing. It doesn't completely eliminate fertilization, but it helps to give you a little bit of uh, nutrition as well as uh, keeping the soil moist and cool and uh, helping to um, mitigate uh, uh, soil fluctuations in temperatures. And then it's going to help with your watering as well. So fertilizing then about uh, once a year, already did it Um just a few weeks ago, just as the growth is starting uh, up in uh, usually early March, uh, then we go in with uh, an all-purpose fertilizer. Or in our case, uh, this year and in years past, uh, we often just get a, an all-purpose lawn fertilizer, high in nitrogen, which these berries need, and but it still gives you a little bit of phosphorus and potassium. But uh, nitrogen, people don't realize that you've got to have the uh, growth in order to produce flowers and uh, fruits. And the fact that we're putting on a lot of mulch and a lot of 
uh, compost on top, and that the soil in our area isn't real deficient in phosphorus and potassium. You don't need very much of it. You're going to get it from your mulch and your compost a little bit anyhow. So the nitrogen's the one thing that is transitory. You put it on and it flows right out with your waters. And you got to be careful not to overwater or you'll lose your nitrogen. So nitrogen's real important that it be put on annually for all fruits, whether they're uh, bushes or vines or uh, fruit trees. Always a good idea to have your soil tested before you do any planting so you know exactly what your soil needs. There are a couple of inexpensive uh, university-related soil testing sites that'll be glad to take your $20 and send you back a soil test report. One is uh, the University of Massachusetts Amherst, and the other is Colorado State University. If you look up uh, either of those universities and put in the words uh, soil test, uh, you'll get the uh, details on how to go about that. And they're fairly complete soil tests, too, so that is a inexpensive option. Of course, you can always soil test for macronutrients and pH yourself. Uh, you can buy, find those kits at any garden center or nursery. But yeah, know your soil before you plant anything. Are the uh, boysenberries like raspberries, once a branch produces, it's done? Yes. And in fact, in this case, because um, our raspberries, I was saying earlier, are uh, fall bears or ever bears, people call them because they produce two crops. This produces one crop. Uh, we get a crop in June and then that's it. And then those berries, as soon as they start to really dry back and look kind of crispy, you just remove them. Then the new canes are all coming up from the base of the plant and we let them just sprawl on the ground uh, while the others are dying back. Then we take them out and at some point then put the uh, new ones up onto the trellis. All right. Boysenberries, and what do you do with them? When do you harvest them? Harvesting is in June in our area. Um, basically, uh, they're pretty much finished by the 4th of July. We can usually count on the last crop just about then, and they will start producing about the first week of June. And uh, you can just, you just come out and pick them. You pick them with your fingers. You don't have to use any kind of pruning equipment or anything like that. You just pluck them off, and they store very nicely in a colander in the refrigerator, and I make a lot of pies and jam with them, and uh, we eat them fresh and just love them. They're great. I Boysenberries are one of the most versatile berries and do well in a variety of climates as long as you have. They actually will tolerate the sun even better than raspberries. Full sun. They, they don't do well in the shade as far as, oh, they'll produce a lot of vine, but who wants that? And then you do have to, one thing with uh, boysenberries, like any blackberry, because they're a type of blackberry, is that uh, they will send up uh, errant blackberries and you can get the blackberry mess if you're not careful uh, where the patch gets overgrown. So just go out there and uh, make sure you tidy up the rows occasionally and, and dig out those ones. Otherwise, we don't find them becoming the jungle at all unless you're just not keeping up with it. Are there boysenberry varieties? Boysenberry is a variety of blackberry. So there are nectarberries, which uh, some people say boysenberries and nectarberries are the same. There are loganberries. There are alala berries. These are all uh, types of berries that were developed from a blackberry. And then there are lots of just blackberries that are not crosses, but have been um, also genetically uh, grown to produce different varieties of uh, blackberries. So uh, you can just get an ordinary blackberry. These are a, a larger berry, a little bit softer berry. I like them because I think they're better for pies and that. Uh, we did grow uh, regular blackberries as well. 
but found um, they weren't to my satisfaction for uh, baking with them and making jam. So we took them out and put in more boysenberries. How daunting are the thorns on these? You know, back in the day when we first put these in, the thornless berries didn't produce very well. They were not very good varieties. Now, I understand from a lot of growers and from the master gardeners that grow these at our Fair Oaks Horticulture Center that a lot of the thornless varieties are excellent now and do produce well. So we put in thorny varieties, and they're not that bad. I will say when we're tying them up, oftentimes you have to put tape or something on your fingers to prevent yourself from just getting little prickles into your uh, fingers, but uh, they're not that bad, and they just produce so well. It is a little hard to be tying branches uh, up to wires when you're wearing thick uh, goat gloves. You can't do that. That's the problem. And so doing something, and actually what works actually pretty well now, and I found that I like these, is just the little thin latex gloves you use for just clean up around the house and that. Uh, They actually work pretty well for being able to tie with those. And then you can replace them and they're cheap. There you go. That's a good quick tip. We are in the boysenberry patch at Pam Bones' house. It's uh, It looks to be very delicious. He said punnily. Thank you, Pam. Thank you very much, Fred. I enjoy uh, sharing my crop with you. Can organic pesticides be hazardous to your health? How safe are homemade pesticides? How safe are some of your other garden inputs, including mulches, manures, and even water? In the October 7th Beyond the Garden Basics newsletter, we chat with America's favorite retired college horticulture professor, Debbie Flower, about these topics in the podcast section of the newsletter. And we do a deep dive in the newsletter itself about less toxic pesticides that you should consider using after you've exhausted all the physical, mechanical, and cultural controls for garden problems. Find a subscription link to the Beyond the Garden Basics newsletter in today's show notes or visit our website, gardenbasics.net, where you can sign up to have the free Beyond the Garden Basics newsletter and podcast delivered to your inbox each Friday. Also at gardenbasics.net, you can listen to any of our previous editions of the Garden Basics podcast, as well as read a transcript of the podcast episode that you're listening to now. For current newsletter subscribers, look for the How Safe Our Organic Garden Chemicals It's in the Beyond the Garden Basics newsletter, now available, and in your email. Take a deeper dive into gardening with the Beyond the Garden Basics newsletter, and it's free. Find the link in today's show notes or at gardenbasics.net. The Garden Basics with Farmer Fred podcast comes out once a week on Fridays. Plus, the newsletter podcast that comes with the Beyond the Garden Basics newsletter continues, and that will also be released on Fridays. Both are free, and they're brought to you by Smart Pots and Dave Wilson Nursery. The Garden Basics podcast is available wherever podcasts are handed out, and that includes our homepage, gardenbasics.net. And that's where you can also sign up for the Beyond the Garden Basics newsletter and podcast. That's Garden Basics. Or you can use the links in today's show notes. And thank you so much for listening.